Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We celebrate births and deaths. We mark seminal events that we are living through and decide which ones are important and which ones aren't. Yet oftentimes, history tells a different story. Sometimes it's the small events, tiny inflection points or hinges of history that seep into all the tentacles going out into the future. My guest, Stephen Johnson, in his new book, Enemy of All Mankind, finds one of those points and gives us the recipe on how it became part of today's political and cultural diet. Stephen Johnson is the best-selling author of 12 previous books, including Where Good Ideas Come From, Farsighted, and The Ghost Map. And it is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Johnson back to this program to talk about Enemy of All Mankind. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's always great to be on the show. It's great to have you here. Piracy is at the, the heart of this story. And before we get into to the specifics of it, what is it about piracy, you think, that is so compelling, that has a certain patina about it that people are always fascinated by? You know, I think on the one hand, there are some of the obvious things that, you know, we're drawn to stories about criminals and violence, for better or for worse, as a society, and that certainly is a part of this book. But I think the other thing about pirates that is very interesting is that they that they occupy this interesting kind of border zone between legitimacy and illegitimacy, particularly at this point in, in when this book takes place in, in the late 1600s, um, that they, on the one hand, uh, you know, seem to be criminals and outlaws and enemies of all mankind. And on the other hand, there's a whole tradition of pirates, particularly people like Francis Drake, um, who, <laughs> as a part of the history of California, um, who, you know, basically had an entire career as a pirate um, and clearly committed, you know, acts of atrocity and, and outright crime, but was able to kind of return to England and be knighted and, you know, buy a fancy estate and effectively, like, you know, become a member of the aristocracy. And so being on that kind of the edge of, uh, you know, a, a official society, half criminal, half not, I think is, is something very appealing and, and intriguing about these figures, particularly in the case of the pirate at the, at the center of Enemy of All Mankind. And tell us about that character, Henry Every. He's a very mysterious uh, cat. <laughs> um, we know very little about him. I mean, he, he, he was basically for a period of about two or three years, he was the most notorious criminal in the world and the world's most wanted man. Um, we know almost nothing about him until 1693. And we know next to nothing about him after 1696. But for three years, we know an immense amount of what he did. Um, and he was at the center of kind of a global spotlight. But basically, he was born in Devonshire, which is the home of all pirates. Basically, when, when you do a fake pirate accent, the and shiver me timbers, that's a Devonshire accent. Um, and was probably involved in the Royal Navy at some point, was probably a, a, some sort of slave trader, um, but got involved in 1693 as a first mate on a, on a, uh, a, sh a shipping expedition that was going headed off to the Caribbean, never made it there. Um, they got uh, kind of stalled in a Spanish port town in, uh, because of a bureaucratic snafu and sat there for months without getting paid. And so Every eventually decides to lead a mutiny, and he successfully steals the flagship of this expedition, a ship called the Charles II, which they renamed the Fancy, 
<laughs> which I think is such a wonderful name for a boat. Um, and he decides to embark on a life of piracy um, and has this extraordinarily daring, ambitious plan um, where they say, instead of going to the Caribbean, which was quite near in some ways, you just follow the trade winds uh, across the Atlantic. He sails all the way around the Horn of Africa, all the way up to the mouth of the Red Sea um, in an expedition that takes uh, more than a year and ends up waiting for these Indian treasure ships that are coming down um, through the Red Sea into the Indian Ocean, returning from Mecca and ends up pulling off this heist uh, of this massive ship called the Gunsway, um, steals somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 million to $100 million worth of, of booty, uh, gold and silver and elephant tusks and so on. And on board this ship, there are a number of religious pilgrims who are women who've gone to Mecca as part of the pilgrimage to, for the Hajj. And his men, everybody's not involved in this, but it, his men end up raping some of the women and some of the women commit suicide in order to avoid being violated by these pirates. And so the whole thing triggers this global crisis when, when, when Aurangzeb, who's the Grand Mughal of India, gets word of it. Um, and he threatens to eject the East India Company because of this British pirate um, from India. And it becomes a massive global crisis. Talk about how you came upon this story, certainly one that has been uh, not well reported over the years. It's, it's strange. I mean, he, he, you know, he is not as, as, as well known as some of the other pirates, and yet I, I find this story is so much more interesting than most piracy stories. You know, it came, my interest in this story actually dates back to, I think, a book that we probably talked about 15 years ago, um, a book called The Ghost Map that I wrote that <laughs> is somewhat back in the news now because it's a book about an epidemic. Um, and Ghost Map was a story about uh, an outbreak of cholera in London in the 1850s, and it had a kind of detective story structure to it. It's a true story about solving the mystery of what was causing people to get sick with cholera. And it had a mix of like a page turner structure with a lot of threads um, into the history of cities and the history of public health and the history of, you know, microbiology and all these different things. And I, it's always been one of my favorite of my books and, and probably one of the, maybe the best selling of all of my books. And so I, I wanted to get back to that format. I wanted to write a historical narrative that had some kind of, you know, propulsive plot to it but that enabled me to go off into all these other kind of tangents to explore the broader kind of context of it. And it, it occurred to me that crime would be a, a great anchor for a story like that, because that, that true crime structure is just so good. You know, someone's an outlaw commits a crime, there's a chase, there's a trial, you know, and you have something like that. It's just, it has a, a, a intelligible structure that a reader really like can kind of walk into. And so I started literally just started looking through the history of crime, and I somehow stumbled across the story of every, and almost instantly knew it was the one. My only concern was that somebody else had already written it, um, because it was clearly such a uh, an extraordinary tale. And in some ways, what, what's happening in this context is like the the modern world that we now take for granted, the world dominated by multinational corporations and trade between nations, all stuff. All this stuff is getting invented for the first time, and. Every is kind of pushing the boundaries of this, um, challenging these institutions that are newly forming to kind of decide what is legitimate and what is not legitimate. So, it was, it was as a as a writer, as researcher, historian. It was um, 
it was incredibly fun to, to write. The overlay, of course, as, as you allude to, is this sort of global nature of it, this idea of globalization as seen through this manhunt for every. Well, one of the things that's interesting about it is it's unclear whether you could have pulled off a global manhunt, you know, even a century or two before this, right? I mean, and it was hard to do because in, in large part because it's just the time lag, right? Um, you know, the crime happens, but just by the, the speed of information at that point, you know, London can't hear about the crime for another three weeks to a month. And then, you know, to, to realize the consequences and how enraged the Indians are um, takes another month or two. And then to alert all the colony outposts around the world uh, to look out for this pirate and to offer the reward for his capture takes another month to get, you know, so... <laughs> You know, it was it was unclear. There were no Zoom calls to coordinate <laughs> the manhunt, you know, back then. But but you know, two centuries before that, you wouldn't have even tried, right? It would have been really there just wasn't a global kind of trading network um, uh, that particularly the British had developed at that point. Um, so uh, it was kind of the beginnings of. In, in, in many ways, you know, there are a lot of echoes of Bin Laden in this story. It's a story about how a very small number of people were able to, through a, a, a criminal act, light up a whole you know, massive crisis on a global scale and create this need for a global manhunt. So it's a very strong echo of what happened with 9-11. And in fact, the, the phrase enemy of all mankind is a legal term that was developed to describe pirates um, and then was subsequently applied to terrorists in the 21st century. It was part of the language that the U.S. government used to justify things like Guantanamo Bay and other extradition practices that they had. It's interesting to see that link between terrorism on the one hand and piracy on the other, both having that at the core, this idea of a kind of asymmetrical warfare. It's exactly right. Well, you know, it's funny, and I don't actually mention this in the book, or I just briefly allude to it, but I, I actually... In, um, right after 9-11, I, uh, I had young children back then, and, and uh, we went to Disney World and went on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And I, I had this very vivid thought as I was on the ride, and I was like, these pirates were the terrorists of their time, right? There are people who are living in a nice community, and all of a sudden these people come in, and they set fire to the town, and they you know, destroy it. Uh, and you know, people lived in fear of being raided by these you know, small band of people. And yet here we are 300 years later and they're these adorable figures and we're on this ride. I was like, are there going to be in 300 years, are there going to be, you know, Al Qaeda rides? Like, like is, that, is that what happens to history is that you romanticize these figures who are absolutely awful and terrifying in the present day. Um, and you know, I literally had that thought in like 2004 or something. And it just stuck around in my head and it took, took me, 16 years to actually turn it into a book, but, you know, sometimes that's what happens. There is this way that we do romanticize it. I mean, somebody's written about the way we look back upon the early days of airline hijacking and and that kind of piracy, and that even, you know, through D.B. Cooper and others has been romanticized over the years. Well, D.B. Cooper is interesting. People know him because he, he, he kind of disappeared and something similar happens with Henry Every. I don't want to give away the ending. But, but the other thing that we should say, thinking about the period itself, is that the pirates were romanticized in Every's time. And that actually turns out to be crucial to the story in a way because it gets hard for the legal institutions to convict some of the pirates 
because they're basically working class heroes, right? At, at that moment in time, in 1695, there were very few templates of the kind of rags to riches, you know, heroic entrepreneur who starts with nothing but makes a vast fortune. Like that didn't, if you were wealthy and powerful, you were like born wealthy and powerful. That was the way the world works. There was not a lot of social mobility at that point in time. And, and so the pirates were the, one of the first models of, you know, the possibility of elevating your station, right? You could go out and live this bold, daring life and come back with a small fortune having been born into nothing. And so if you were looking at it as a, as an English person, the fact that, you know, this guy, Henry Every had robbed, you know, some Muslims all around the world on the other side of the world, there was nothing offensive about that. That was, that was bold and daring. And that was a life that you could emulate. So that that's part of the romance of piracy. That was, it was a crucial part of the, the period in which Every was living. The other aspect is that this area at the mouth of the Red Sea, we have modern piracy taking place there today. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people know, I think most people have heard of the Somali pirates. Um, and, you know, they're the most famous besides, you know, digital pirates, I suppose. Um, they're the most famous, uh, notorious pirates in the world today. And they are, you know, practicing their trade in the exact same waters because... At, you know, in 1695, um, the mouth of the Red Sea is a very exposed place, right? It's a very narrow little channel there. And um, so it's, you know, there's not a lot of room to maneuver. In 1695, you had people, you know, trading through the Middle East and coming back from places like Mocha, um, which were major trading hubs. And so they were vulnerable there. Now it's oil, basically, like you have oil coming down through that same channel. So you have two different kinds of value that are that are vulnerable at that point. But they're, you know, here we are more than 300 years later and, and we're, pirates are still gravitating to that part of the globe. Talk about the East India Company, which plays a major role here. So, the, you know, in some ways, the, the, the way I ultimately came to think about this book is that it's a clash between three different ways of accumulating wealth. <laughs> on the one hand, you got the pirates, right? We've talked about them. On the other hand, you have Aurangzeb and the Grand Mughals, this old, you know, empire, um, kind of a feudal system. Um, Aurangzeb is probably the wealthiest person in the world at that point. But then also in the story is this new way of accumulating wealth, um, which is a publicly traded multinational corporation. Um, it, you know, East India Company was the first company to actually have shares that the public could buy. And the people involved made as much money from this, the rising share price as they did from actual, you know, income profits from selling the goods that they sold. And that's, that was, no one knew it at the time, but that is, was the future of wealth, right? If you look at the Fortune 500 now, um, you know, the wealthiest people in the world, the vast majority of them are people who made their money by selling shares in their company, like, you know, Bill Gates. Um, and so it, it was this battle between these kind of three forces and the East India Company could have easily been evicted from India um, if the events had kind of played out slightly differently. And, you know, people can read the book to find out how it happened. But if they had been kicked out because of the actions of this rogue pirate who was not affiliated with them, um, that would have changed the course of history. I mean, I think multinational capitalism was probably going to happen no matter what. That wasn't necessarily at stake here. But the British Empire 
might well have never formed in India because they, it, the British Empire in the next century, in the middle of the 1700s, really evolved directly out of the East India Company's foothold there. And, and you know, imagining the last 200 years without a British colonial presence in India, it's a very different kind of course of world history. And, and so every story is right, right at the center of, of how those things turned out. As you dug into this, finally, were you surprised at, at the contemporary connections, the things that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, that's what made it increasingly interesting to write. I, I had the, in part because of that ride, uh, you know, going on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride 15 years before, from the very beginning, I thought of the connection between terrorists and, and pirates. Um, and in fact, the crime, just by coincidence, the heist actually happens on September 11th, 1695. So there's a little bit of poetry there. Mm. Um, but I hadn't really fully thought about these these different economic systems. And it, 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 there's a whole other riff we could go off on about how the pirates themselves had a very egalitarian economic system on board the ship. They're probably the most progressive economic organization on the planet at that point. You know, they shared their wealth very equitably and they had a system of democratic governance. It was much more progressive than most governments in the world at that point and certainly most corporations. So I hadn't realized the the sense of like these different ways of organizing work and, and thinking about wealth accumulation that they were in conflict. And that once that became clear to me about halfway through the process of researching it. I was, I was like, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> Stephen Johnson, the book is Enemy of All Mankind, the true story of piracy, power, and history's first global manhunt. Stephen, it's always a pleasure. I thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. I'll, I'll see you in a couple of years for the next book. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>